I don't know if you watched, as you watched that video, if you kept seeing the, I guess what you might recall, I don't know what you call them, maybe rejection letters, profile rejections or whatever. Um, this wasn't part of my intro, but it just happened to flow. Um, I don't know if you, you kept seeing, I'm sorry for the disappointing news, but there was one encouragement throughout the letters that, that had its one common thread. Did you see it? Keep trusting in the Lord. Keep trusting in the Lord. Keep trusting in the Lord's plan. Keep trusting in the Lord. With, with, every, with every, I'm sorry this is disappointing news, I, almost every time, as, as quick as I could keep up, I saw, keep trusting in the Lord. Which would be absolutely unhelpful, irrational encouragement if Christ wasn't trustworthy. If Christ wasn't sovereign. If Christ wasn't in control of all things. We would have absolutely zero reason to find any encouragement in trusting in the plan of God. Zero. It would just be empty words spoken by religious people in hopes to sound a little pious and maybe encouraging. One thing we're going to see in Luke 13 today is, is that Christ is sovereign. He's sovereign. And you look around the world today, you, you look at Luke, uh, you look at, at Ukraine, or as Dave mentioned, you look at the way that the, the church is being persecuted. You even look in our country and you just see things that are quite frankly just irrational. They're wicked. I won't list, I, I won't name a list. You guys know. You guys see it. It's crazy. I mean, you look around the world right now. We have access to everything. We have access. We, we can see what's happening in Ukraine with our eyes. We can see what's happening in Europe, Asia, in, in our country. We see all the crazy stuff, and, and we're sitting here thinking, like, do you ever just wonder, what does God think about this? What's God thinking right this moment? We know this, that... that all of creation right now, it's, 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 it's not just evil, and they're not just like looking for resources, and they're not just looking for you know, an easier day or even a little more power. They're raging against God. They're raging. They're not looking to submit to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. They're looking to, to place them, their, themselves on the throne of their lives and on their hearts, uh, them and set themselves as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's their desire. Every grasp for power, every evil deed is an expression of a heart that is hostile towards God, hates God. How does God respond? Psalm 2 gives us a, a, a brief description of the way the Lord handles it. He laughs. He laughs at those nations that seek His glory. He laughs at them. He says, they plot in vain. They're evil. God just sits and laughs. As a maybe as a, as an adult, we we could look at our kids and, and they might try to get upset at their mom or dad and they pitch their little their little fit and they stomp their feet and it's like, dude, you are out of control. But I'm going to handle this right now. And with God, and and God can sit there and laugh, and God is not phased. It doesn't mean that God's laughing at sorrow. It doesn't mean that God's laughing at at people who are dying or, or that God's laughing at sin. God's laughing at this foolish heart who thinks that he's sovereign over God. That, that he can in any way, shape, or form change God or change God's plan. can't happen. We can be encouraged, church, that right now in this very moment, Christ is working all things together for his glory. All of them. Everything. 
And you're looking in your life right now and you're thinking, that thing? This circumstance? I mean, we, we saw a little bit of, the, of, of what the Contis were, were dealing with the past few years. But each rejection letter, you mean you saw it. There had to have been a few dozen. How's God working together this for his, his glory? I don't know. Sometimes we don't know. Sometimes we can't look at our circumstances and, and, and look and see how is God working this together for his glory. I don't get it. I don't understand. Maybe you've been there. Well, when we can't look at the present and we can't look to the future, there's only one place we can look to, and that's the past. As we gaze upon Christ in the scripture and see this, this is our main point this morning, that nothing thwarts the sovereign plan of Jesus. Nothing. Nothing thwarts the sovereign plan of Jesus. He accomplishes all that he wants to. All of it. So let's gaze upon our sovereign Lord this morning as we read in Luke 13, 31 through 35. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. In the third day, I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. May God bless the reading of his word. Nothing, church, thwarts the sovereign plan of Jesus. Point one, Jesus isn't stopped by any man. Jesus isn't stopped by any man. We see at this point uh, in, in verse 31, at that very hour, what very hour? We must remember over the, the past few months we've been here, or past few weeks we've been here in Luke chapter 13, in Luke chapter 12, Luke chapter 11, Jesus has been teaching. Jesus been, has been uh, teaching some very uh, harsh realities towards the religious leaders. They aren't happy about it. And in the same context of this, of this, of this teaching, including uh, last week, this, this narrow door that leads to life, that unless you enter through the, the narrow door, you will not have life. You will not have a seat in the kingdom. But you will you will be sent to that that uh, to hell, a place of of weeping and, and gnashing of teeth as you gaze upon those who would be in the kingdom, those who have, who have trusted in the sovereign work of Christ for salvation. Jesus speaks these hard realities over these people. He's he's teaching them. He's he's the prophet of God coming and speaking the word of God to the people. How do the Pharisees respond? They come in, they rush in, and they, they tell him, they say, Herod wants to kill you. We know Herod. He was, he was a ruler in the area. And you'll remember from uh, earlier in, in the Gospel of Luke that, that Herod was the one that killed John the Baptist. The Jews hated Herod. I mean, they hated Herod. He was, no, he was petulant. He was petty. He was insecure. He was like kind of like a he was he wasn't he wasn't Caesar. He was more of like, you know, middle management. Anybody know that? Like kind of like middle manager who thinks he's like executive manager and he's kind of like just petulant and he's petty and he's got an ego and he's got we kind of know that guy. You think of that guy? That's Herod. Herod was power hungry. The Jews could not stand him. And we wouldn't put it beneath Herod to kill Jesus. Again, John the Baptist, he came and, and he called out Herod's sin because, because Herod was an evil, sexually immoral man. John the Baptist came and he called him to repentance. How does, how does Herod respond? He cuts his head off, puts it on a platter to satisfy the desires of one of his lovers. He's a wicked, vile, evil man. And you can imagine at this point, as we've seen Jesus uh, preaching and teaching, performing miracles, casting out demons. 
His, his following is only growing. Crowds are, are following him. And you can think to someone such as Herod who, who gazes upon someone like Jesus who's getting a mass following, more influence, more affection. He's gaining more traction. How would that make a petulant man like Herod feel? Insecure. Threatened. So it is very likely here that Herod would desire to kill Jesus. It was likely a very real threat that, that, that Herod really did desire to kill Jesus. But, but we come here and, and, and we know that the, the, that the Pharisees weren't very fond of Jesus. We, we've already seen that several, several different times. And, and so why would they seem to care about sparing the life of Jesus? I mean, it seems to a certain point, if they were so threatened by Jesus, they wouldn't tell him. They would actually just go give Herod a tip. Hey, Jesus is going to be here if you want to kill him. That's not what they do. Not here. What was their motive? I, 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 can, I can speculate to a certain extent I, that, that they were intimidating him or trying to scare him off into leaving. Re regardless of what it was, they were saying, leave. Get out of here. Bye. See ya. Uh... Herod wants to kill you. You need to leave now. But again, let's consider the context. Consider the context of, of Luke 11, where Jesus accu accuses the Pharisees of having this external-looking righteousness, but no inward heart that desires righteousness. Remember that? The Pharisees, they were the ones that would clean the outside of the cup, but they would not, they would not clean the inside of the cup. Oh, they looked religious. From the outside, they did their good deeds. They gave to the church. They, they were good-looking folks. And, and to everyone around them, to the poor, to the sick, to the hurting, to the broken, to the sinful, these guys were the standard of righteousness to everybody in their Jewish community. They looked the part. And Jesus comes in, and, and, he's, and, and he sees the sinful people broken over their sin. He sees the poor and the weeping desiring for a Savior. And he sees the self-righteous Pharisees and the scribes relying on their own efforts and their own morality and their own external righteousness, and Jesus is sick. Jesus, Jesus looks at such people and he says, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. He, look, he looks at people like the Pharisees and he says, unless you repent, you will not have a seat in the kingdom of heaven. But I've come to save the sick and the broken and the hurting and those that desire salvation. Jesus was not impressed with the Pharisees. It almost, to a certain extent, seemed like Jesus was on a mission to expose the Pharisees for the frauds that they were. And because of that, at the end of Luke eleven fifty three through 54, Jesus says this, or Luke, Luke writes this, as he went away, he being Jesus, as he, as he went away after teaching, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. The Pharisees were not out to protect Jesus by telling him that Herod wanted to kill him. They were not friends of Jesus. They were not fond of Jesus. There was no affection for Jesus. But Jesus takes it a, a step further in Luke 12. He says, there's thousands of people here. He's speaking to thousands of people here. You can imagine this. And he puts the Pharisees on blast. He comes here and he says, hey, you've got to avoid the influence of the Pharisees. Avoid these people. You see these people in the crowd, the Pharisees, they thousands of people. Avoid being like them because they're hypocrites. Avoid them. And then Jesus goes on in the rest of chapter 12 and most of 13 to describe the kingdom of God, the characteristics of the citizens of the kingdom, and what true saving faith looks like. And as he does that, I guarantee you this, the Pharisees saw that as an indictment against Israel, but mainly an indictment against them, the religious leaders of that time. I mean, even think about this last week. I didn't really get into it because I lost track of time. But in chapter 13, 29 and 30, we, we did talk about this, we, that, that there would be those that would come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. 
that the kingdom of God will be filled with people from all over the world, of every tribe, every nation, every tongue. But in, in verse 30, Jesus says, there are some, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. And, and what he's referring to is this. There, there will be those in the kingdom that never should have, never, you never would have thought would have been there in the first place. The Gentiles. No Jew would have thought that, 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 the, that the kingdom of heaven would have been filled with Gentiles. Jews thought this, many Jews thought this because they were Jews that they would be the first in the kingdom. And Jesus says, couldn't be further from the truth. Just because you're a Jew does not mean that you're going to be the first in the kingdom. Unless you put your trust in Christ, you have no spot in the kingdom. Amen. So Jesus comes and he's just absolutely wrecking their framework. He's wrecking their reputation. He's wrecking everything that they they'd built up, this religious system. He's wrecking it all. And they're not happy about it. How do, the, how do the Pharisees respond? Well, here's how they could have responded. They could have repented. That's what they could have done. They could have seen this one who has come in preaching with power and authority, who is casting out demons, who is healing the sick, and, and they could have repented. That's what they could have done. Instead, their hard-heartedness led to them trying to have Jesus flee from their presence. Get out of here, Jesus. Leave, Jesus. Leave, prophet. This is, often, this is often the tactic of people who hate the word of the Lord, who hate the authority of God. Flee. We see it with Jonah. Remember Jonah? The Lord, here, here comes a word from the Lord. What's Jonah do? I don't like it, God. I flee. Of course, we know this. Jonah couldn't escape the sovereign hand of God. Consider others who leave. We've seen it within our body. A call for repentance. They leave. We've seen it. It's one common tactic. When I hate the word of the Lord, I leave. I close my eyes, cover my ears, and I leave and I flee from the presence of the Lord. Rather than gazing upon Christ, Repenting of our sins, trusting in him, we flee. I mean, this is exactly what happened in Amos 7. I know many of us aren't familiar with the book of Amos. A little bit of an obscure book. But if, if you'll remember in Amos 7, this was the same way that the religious leaders treated Amos, the prophet of God. Amos, he, he comes and he, and he calls Israel to repent. What happens? Amos chapter 7, verse 10. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam, evil king Jeroboam, shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. Amos calls Israel to repentance, calls Jeroboam to repentance. The priest, he comes and he doesn't like it. He goes and tattletales on, on, on Amos and, he's, and he's, he's not calling Jeroboam to repentance. He's saying, Amos has it out for you. You better watch out for Amos because he feels threatened here by the word of the Lord. Then what happens in, in verse 12? And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, Go flee away from the land of Judah and eat bread there and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and it is a temple of the kingdom. He says, get out of here, Amos. Leave, Amos. We do not desire to hear from the Lord. We know that, we know that your words, Amos, and bringing them to us are a message of hope. That if we would repent of our sin, salvation is offered. If you trust in God, salvation is offered. Safety is offered. Protection is offered. 
But if you flee, if you rebel, if you disobey, if you keep doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord, you will perish. That was the message. The response of the religious leaders and the king is this. Get out of here. We don't want to hear it. We do not desire to hear from the Lord. No matter how faithful he's been, no matter how good he's been, we do not desire it. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from, the, from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Now therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, Do not prophesy against Israel, and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Your wife shall be a prostitute in the city, and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword, and your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land, and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. Judgment. The Lord gives them over to their sin. Church, when we come face to face with the word of the Lord, we must understand that it is primarily the Lord offering mercy. We must see that. Often, what we must, we got two choices here. We can repent and believe, or we can rebel and disobey. As the word of God is preached in this pulpit this morning, every other Sunday morning, as the word of God is, is, is taught and discussed on Wednesday nights or Tuesday nights, Thursday nights, as fathers, as we're leading our families and family worship at home and, and we're opening the Bible and, and we're teaching our children, children, listen, wives, listen, in your own personal study, as the Holy Spirit is, is revealing truth Shining a light on your heart and your idols and your sin. You get two responses. You, you get only, only two choices here. To repent and believe or to disobey and rebel. There's no other option. But Christ is calling us to trust in him. Not in our own ways. And when we choose to, to, to rebel and doubt, what we typically often do again is we, we, we shut the word of God, we walk away, we want nothing to do with it. Can't, you can't speak to me. So it's like we're little children who put our, our fingers in our ears and we're like, no, 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 no I'm not going to listen. Dear friends, that is called disobedience and rebellion. Rebellion against God. If that is you, dear friend, if that is your heart, and your heart is primarily that that would rebel against the Lord, dear friend, you will experience the wrath and the judgment of God. But understand today that Christ offers mercy. Christ offers compassion. Christ offers grace. That's what he offers. Do not close your ears. Do not be like the Pharisees here and close your ears to the word of the Lord. And ask the Lord to depart. You will not like the result. I promise you. But like the prophet Amos here. Like the prophet Amos, Jesus, the one true prophet of God, does not back down to opposition. He does not fear. He does not change his plans. He does not change his course. Jesus knew his purpose. Jesus knew why he came. Jesus knew what he must do. And Jesus was absolutely sovereign. And nothing was going to change his course. Nothing was going to change his mission. Nothing was going to change his ministry. Nothing was going to change his course. Jesus, as these Pharisees bring the news of, of Herod wanting to kill him, Jesus wasn't scared. Jesus was like, are you kidding me? 
Jesus didn't ask any questions. Jesus didn't. In fact, Jesus, he mocks him. He says, why don't you go tell the fox? Maybe you've been talking to him. Maybe you're setting this whole thing up, Pharisees, because I know you don't like me, but you're trying to scare me, and you're not going to scare me. I got an idea. Why don't you go tell that fox? The, 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 the term fox is more, it's a very condescending term. You think Jesus wouldn't call names? Jesus is calling names. You go tell that fox. I got a word for him, my man. I'm not scared of him. I'm not scared of him at all. In fact, understand this. He wants to kill me. I'm calling my shot. Today, tomorrow, and, and, and the next day, I'm going to go finish my course. I'm going to go cast out demons. I'm going to go heal the lame. And on the third day, I'll finish it all. This, this, this phrase here in, in, um, in Luke 13, 30, 32, today and tomorrow and the third day, this was a very common Jewish phrase. I know when, when we think third day, we automatically think what? The resurrection. But, and Jesus, of course, in finishing his course, is talking about the resurrection, but today, tomorrow, and the next day was a was more of a Jewish phrase that would have been like, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna get to it today, tomorrow, or the next day, but I'm gonna finish it." It's basically saying, "I'm gonna get to it. I'm gonna get to it in my due time." It's a common, common, common phrase here. Ultimately, Jesus was one hundred percent sure that he would finish his course. Ultimately, again, we know that, that finishing his course would result in his crucifixion, and we will, we will talk about that. But Jesus would finish his ministry until the day that he laid down his life and make atonement for our sin. And Jesus had no doubt that would happen. And Jesus had no doubt because he was completely sovereign over the situation. Jesus was in control. Herod was not in control. The religious leaders were not in control. Jesus was 100% sovereign. And Jesus was all about this kingdom work. We've talked about this a lot over the past few weeks. We wouldn't be distracted from it. He, Jesus would come and he would cast out demons. It didn't matter if the Pharisees were mad about it. Oh, you're going to accuse me of doing work on the Sabbath? I don't care. You're going to accuse me again of, of, of healing the sick on the Sabbath? Here I am. You're going to look for me. You're, you're going to wait for me to, 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 to stumble and to say something wrong that's unbiblical. Watch this. I'm going to call you out on your sin. I'm going to preach. And I will expose you. Jesus was not threatened by any king, any institution, or any religious leader. Jesus was coming beyond a shadow of a doubt and establishing his kingdom, and there was nothing anybody could do to stop it. Amen. He is sovereign. He was sovereign, and he will always be sovereign. But Jesus would work until the work is finished. That's our Savior. He would continue to work until the work is finished. But even then, as Jesus laid down his life. As Jesus died for our sins, as he was put up on that cross and paid the penalty of our sin, making atonement and propitiation for us and satisfying the wrath of God on our behalf, in that moment as Jesus was hanging on the cross and every nail was being driven into his hand and his feet, Christ was in complete control. You think Pilate was in control? Pilate wasn't in control. The Jews weren't in control. They couldn't kill him if they tried. I mean, what do we see in John 10? John 10, 17 through 18, we read this. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. Understand that? Understand the implications of that? I mean, Jesus was certainly innocent hanging up there on the cross, but Jesus did not go kicking and screaming on the cross. Jesus laid down on the cross. Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice on the cross, the way that Isaac offered himself on Moriah, 
Christ comes and he, he bears the weight of our sin. And he is sovereign over the situation. They did not take his life. Jesus offered it up. Christ was completely sovereign in this moment. Jesus says, I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I receive from my Father. Christ is, control, is in control of all his ministry, every demon, every sickness. And Christ was completely sovereign over his death. And Christ is completely sovereign over his resurrection. Christ is sovereign over the building of his church. Christ is sovereign over sending his spirit. And Christ is sovereign in coming again and ruling and reigning for all of eternity. But on the cross, we see that, that even there, Jesus in his crucifixion would destroy another authority. In Hebrews 2, 14 through 15, we see this, that since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery on the cross, Jesus was not demonstrating just submission, but his authority. His authority over life and death. His authority over Satan. And his authority to redeem us and to bring us from slavery to being children of God and being citizens of the kingdom. Oh, Christ is sovereign. Christ is sovereign. Here's the question, church. Will we trust our sovereign Savior in our day-to-day -day lives? Will we? Will we trust him? I, and and I, man, I, I'm asking this question today, knowing that like this week, my, the answer to that has been in my heart, by and large, no. The answer to, to that in my heart this week has, has been trusting in myself, trusting in my circumstances, trusting and hoping things would get better. That is a terrible place to put your trust. As I'm preaching this message this morning, in my heart, I am in, well aware that I am in need of repentance. That repenting of trusting in my own efforts, in my own self. I've got a feeling out here this morning, there's probably a lot of you who are in the same way. In your marriage, in, in your job, in your health, in, in doing what Christ has called you to do, that you're like, I, 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 I'm, I'm so upset, and I'm just in despair, I'm depressed, and you should be, because you're trusting in yourself. Christ has never called you, friend, to trust in yourself and to trust in your own efforts. Christ is calling you to cast all your hope and all your joy on him, because he's sovereign, and he's good, and he will accomplish his purposes for you, which he has promised us is working all things together for your good and for his glory. That is his promise. For you. He will bring it to completion. Trust in him. Will we trust as we minister? It's hard sometimes ministering at a small church, isn't it? Isn't it hard? Because sometimes at a small church we look and, and we think that, that man, it, we're trying, we're working here, we're trying to make disciples, but it's not happening, that baptism is just not. Will, will we trust that, that through the faithful preaching of the word and, and, and going out and teaching and, and evangelizing, will we trust that Christ is building his church, that we can minister joyfully? Will we, church? Or will we trust in our own efforts and our own strategies and our own vision, our own, all, all, all this other junk that we think we got to have? In your hardest moment, will you trust that Christ is praying for you? He's interceding for you? Will you trust that? Will you trust that he's given us everything we need for life and godliness in his word? That he will, he will provide it for you, everything in this word, as it points you to Christ? Will we trust in our sovereign Savior and his provision? Will we trust, as he said in Matthew 28, that he will never, ever, ever, ever leave us or forsake us, ever? Will we trust that? Oh, when we trust in our sovereign Savior, we can walk in the same power and joy and confidence that Christ did. Because it is He who lives in us. That death defeating Satan, stomping, sin defeating Savior lives in us. Point two 
Jesus isn't hindered by our unbelief. Jesus isn't hindered by our unbelief. We see in 33, Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Again, Jesus here reiterates his sovereignty. However, this time he does so with a bit of sarcasm. A little, little bit of sarcasm. I mean, we get Jesus in rare form here. Jesus calling some names. Jesus offering a little sarcasm here, okay? And Jesus says, It cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus is kind of mocking the Israelites just a bit. See, we, we, if, you, if we read the Old Testament, we know this, that Jerusalem was meant to be a holy city of worship unto the Lord. That was God's purpose for Jerusalem. Unfortunately, it was often an unholy city of worship where God's people would indulge in self-worship and idolatry. It's always been a city of worship. Unfortunately, often the wrong kind of worship. And it was where the Israelites were often wise in their own eyes. They would close their ears and close their eyes to the, and close their hearts off to the word of the Lord. And they would reject the prophets. They would reject the word of the Lord, ultimately because they would reject God. And they would rely on themselves. And often, this would result not just in asking a prophet to flee because they didn't want to hear what the word of the Lord had to, what the word of the Lord was. This would often result in them killing prophets. They would straight up murder the prophets. The prophets would come in and say, Thus saith the Lord. And ultimately the Israelites would say, We've had enough. Evil kings would say, We've had enough. And they would stone them. They'd put them to death. Literally kill them. I mean, we see this in in 2 Chronicles 24, where Zechariah calls the, the, um, the Israelites to repentance, but he was stoned to death for it. Killed right there. Big, heavy stones crushing his body, dead. Because the Israelites did not want to hear the word of the Lord. Or think, th- think of this. Uh, we, it's been a long time since we've been in Nehemiah. But in, in Nehemiah chapter 9, we see this prayer of confession in, in view of God's mercy. This, re- this, this uh, description of the Israelites in Nehemiah 9.26, it says, Nevertheless, in light, of their mer- in light of God's mercy, nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you and they committed great blasphemies. Israel did not have a great history of following the Lord. In fact, it was more characteristic of them to stone the prophets and kill the prophets and flee from the word of the Lord. They did not desire the Lord. They did not believe the Lord. They did not trust the Lord. They didn't. And ultimately, Jesus knows this. That as he is setting his eyes towards Jerusalem, as he's going to Jerusalem to, to lay down his life for our sin, as he's going there, Jesus knows the same fate awaits him. The same fate that, that awaited Zechariah awaits him. That he would be killed. That he would lay down his life for our sin. Can you imagine it? Can you imagine a holy God who's been so kind, who's been so merciful, who's been so good, who's been holy, who's been gracious, who's been patient? Can you imagine in that moment how it must have felt as his eyes are set towards Jerusalem, knowing what he must go and do, and all he sees is increasing crowds, yes, but increasing crowds that are hostile towards him and that hate him. I must confess, if it was me, I'd say, I'm going to give you over to your sin. I'm going to give you exactly what you want. Me? Lay down my life for you? Not a chance. Not a chance. 
You don't want to be saved? Fine. You hate me? That's your prerogative. I've done nothing wrong to you. I've not wronged you. I've not hurt you. I've been good to you. I've been generous to you. I'm done. But that's not our Savior. Jesus' sovereign plan was not at all interrupted because of ungrateful, unholy, unrighteous, self-righteous people. Christ set his eyes toward Jerusalem and he went. It is in Jerusalem where the one true final lamb of God would be slain to make atonement for our sins. And even though the city was filled with ungrateful and unholy people that would kill him, Christ is still faithful to offer up his life. He's not affected by our emotions. He's not affected by our unbelief. He's not affected by man. Christ is going to do what he said he would do regardless of what you do, regardless of what I do, regardless of what Russia does. Christ is on the throne and he is sovereign. But even in the midst of, of, not that he just even lays down his life, but here Jesus demonstrates compassion. Compassion. In, in 34, Jesus says, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are, what a, an indictment. Jesus has pity on these murderers. Pity and compassion. He feels, he feels tender towards them. I don't know what that's like. I really don't. I don't, I don't pity the murderer. I just don't. I don't really pity the guy, I mean, who, who gets himself into his own mess. Maybe there's something wrong with me. But here Jesus, in, in this moment, Jesus has compassion. And Christ uses the phrase that, that, that how often I was willing to bring you under my wings. Oh, the Jews would have known what this meant. All throughout the Old Testament, being under the wings, we're, we're, seen, as, as, we're seen as symbolizing protection from God. Oh, how often Christ was, was ready to give them protection and comfort and bring them under the wings of God. But Jesus says, they were unwilling. You weren't willing. Now, it's not that their unwillingness was somehow trumping the will of God. That's a different sermon for a different day. But the reality is the Lord gives them over to exactly what they want. He does. It's not that Jesus was hiding something from them that they wanted. Jesus was giving them over exactly what they wanted. That was themselves and their system and their power and their whatever. Their self-righteous system. But Jesus, in that moment, is still compassionate toward them. Friends, this morning, as, as, as we minister, as we seek to make disciples here in Kennesaw, as we send people all throughout the world, like Pat to Liberia, to, to preach the gospel, to make disciples, and to build the church, will we have compassion on sinners the way that our Lord Jesus Christ does? I know how hard it is right now in our culture and in our world where, where we see so many vile things that violate God's word. And, and, and I know in my own heart how quick I am to be angry, how quick I am to judge, how quick I am to be frustrated. But I want us this morning just to gaze upon our Savior and to see the group of people that, that like, honestly, God poured out infinite number of blessings upon the Israelites. And they would basically do nothing but reject him by and large. But Christ still demonstrates compassion and mercy and grace in spite of them. His, his will and his sovereign plan is not dependent upon them. May we say, be that same way. May we be compassionate and merciful towards the lost. Finally, we see in verse 35, Jesus brings some sobering news. 
Jesus says, behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Ultimately, because Israel would reject Christ, would put him on a cross and kill him, Jesus says that their house is forsaken. I believe here that Jesus is talking about Jerusalem. And I believe that Jesus here is more specifically talking about the temple. It's forsaken. I'm leaving it forsaken. We don't have much time, but I will suffice it. Um, I will suffice it to say this this morning. So there was a time in AD 70 where we see that Jerusalem and the temple were completely destroyed. That the wrath of God came upon that city and those people in that moment like they had not seen before. Jesus says in Matthew 24, in the destruction of the temple, that not one stone would be left unturned. It was true. Jesus brought his wrath to that generation. In fact, with Josephus, in, uh, in, in one of his accounts of war, book six, chapter five, part one, if you're, wanting, if you're taking notes, he gives us this description of the destruction of Jerusalem. He says, while the holy house, the holy house being the temple, was on fire, everything was plundered that came to hand, and 10,000 of those that were caught were slain. Nor was there a commiseration of any age or any reverence of gravity, but children and old men and profane persons and priests were all slain in the same manner, so that this war went around all sorts of men and brought them to destruction, and as well those that made supplication for their lives as as those that defended themselves by fighting. The flame was also carried a long way and made an echo together with the groans of those who were slain. And because this hill was high and the works at the temple were very great, one would have thought the whole city had been on fire. Nor can one imagine anything either greater or more terrible than this noise. It was a moment of great destruction and great judgment. Reminds me a lot of what we see in the book of Judges. Our family right now is going through the book of Judges. And it seems like if you read one part of Judges, you can almost read the whole book. God's people are evil and do what's evil in the sight of the Lord. God judges them by sending another nation to come and to plunder them and to attack them and to bring them into captivity, which ultimately leads them to calling out for God's mercy and calling out for God's hand, calling out for salvation. And at the moment they call for the salvation of the Lord, the Lord sends a judge to judge the nation that the Lord used to judge Israel. He gives them mercy in the moment. It's the overarching story of the book of Judges. So here Jesus he says, behold, your house is forsaken. He's announcing something that's coming, but Jesus doesn't just leave them in judgment. He also says this, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Christ offers a bit of hope in this moment. But he's saying this, you're not going to see me as I actually am unless you see me as the one who's written about in Psalm 118. It's a messianic psalm. Is that is who I am. They would have understood that. Blessed is he who comes at the name of the Lord is a line in Psalm 118. Psalm 118, 19-26, the Jews would have understood this. They would have known this psalm. And this psalm would have represented this. Psalm 118, verse 19, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteousness shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. 
The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. We see in Psalm 118 the prayer and the cry of someone who understands their need for salvation. That's what we see in Psalm 118. But we don't just see in Psalm 118 the prayer of someone who needs salvation. We see God's provision of salvation. We see the cornerstone who was sent to make atonement for our sins, to to not just provide salvation, but to become salvation for the people of God. And in that moment, when God's people would see their need for a Savior, they would look to Christ and they would see that he indeed is that Savior. The problem is, by and large, God's people were not looking, by and large, for an external righteousness. They were content with their own self-righteousness. Oh, but God is sovereign. Because Christ is dead, he's buried, and on the third day he rises again. Christ Christ spends a few months with with his disciples, and then then he goes to heaven, where he sits on the throne and he reigns. But then Christ, he he promises before he leaves, he promises to to send his Holy Spirit. And he does. We see this in Acts. And then in Acts 2, once the Holy Spirit comes, Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, he goes and he preaches to who? What to Jews? In that moment, we see thousands. In one fell swoop, thousands of Jews who are convicted of their sin and come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. In the book of Romans, we also see that, 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 that there seems to be a day where, where the Lord's going to mass save Israelites. Who will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They will recognize their need for a Savior once and for all. And they will see that Jesus is indeed that Savior. And that is how Jesus saves every single person, including you and me. No different. That we recognize our need for a Savior. And we gaze upon Christ and we say, indeed, that he is that Savior. And Christ offers his mercy and he saves us from our sin. And nothing, 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 nothing can change that. All those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That is our sovereign king's plan. It cannot be thwarted. He will build his church. It cannot be thwarted. He will sustain you. It cannot be thwarted. He will give you joy. He will produce fruit of the spirit in you. It cannot be thwarted. He will return. It cannot be thwarted. He will rule and reign. It cannot be thwarted. Church, may we find much encouragement in this this morning.